Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. I'm Lori, and I have Brian Kingsley and Melissa Loftus here with me. Brian is the Chief Academic Officer of Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools in Charlotte, North Carolina. We are really excited to have him today because he has an incredible article coming out soon called Scaling Literacy Success Through Reading Science. So we're really pumped up for you all to read this article, and we wanted to elevate some of the ideas and hear directly from Brian about this article. Um, before we jump in, though, we want to talk about what has gone wrong. Um, the New York Times recently released an article on NAEP scores, and Melissa is going to give us a little bit of a digest on that um, before we jump into Brian's uh, article. Yeah, so um, I saw the you know, NAEP scores were just released, um, and the bottom line is they're pretty bad. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. that, that's pretty much where we're at. Um, and, you know, the article that I was reading, the, what the percentages were that only 35% of fourth graders were proficient in reading in 2019, mm. which actually went down from 37% in 2017. And 34% of eighth graders were proficient in reading, down from 36%. So overall student progress in reading has stalled in the last decade, with the highest performers stagnating and the lowest achieving students falling even further behind. And that came from a New York Times article called reading scores on national exam decline in half the states. Oh, Brian, tell uh-huh. us about what you think has gone wrong <laughs> based on this, this <laughs> NAEP article that we're just so upset by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm grateful for the question. I mean, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, believe it or not, has the highest average proficiency rate across all the urban districts at 39% proficient. That's awesome. Um, and so it's, it's, it's awesome. But when you think about the other side of that, we have 61% yeah. of our students that are not there yet. Right. And that's in fourth grade. Yep. And, and my insights uh, of working at three large urban school systems in learning the approach to literacy and really learning myself and unlearning and relearning is that where I see our biggest issue is that we simply don't have schools at scale using curriculum that aligns to research on how kids learn to read or even our state standards for that matter. And I believe in, you know, education, it's probably the greatest equity issue of our time. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, when you think about your, your background, cause you said you work, you mm-hmm. have worked in three um, different systems. Can you tell us about what you saw there and uh, what has driven you to, get to where you are today in Charlotte Mecklenburg, which for our listeners who don't know, um, Brian, if you could just kind of give a quick recap of where you stand and where you are within high quality curriculum implementation, and then maybe backtrack through what got you to this point. Yeah, so that's, thank you. So Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools has recently adopted uh, EL Education's K-8 curriculum. We are in year one of our implementation, and we started implementing in grades kindergarten through third grade in our elementary schools and grade six in our middle schools. Uh, We did that by design 
to ensure that we did not compromise any of the high quality professional learning experiences that we know are equally, if not more important than the resources themselves to really ensure that our people not only understand the curricula, but understand the research and the design behind the curriculum mm -hmm. to be able to implement, uh, not just with fidelity, but with integrity. Yep. And, you know, in my learnings over the last 23 years in public education, I really believe, and even for myself, is that we have an awareness problem. You know, districts and teachers continue to teach reading in less effective ways because they don't know the research on how kids learn to read. It's not because they're not trying hard, not because they don't want to teach the right way. We simply haven't been taught to teach reading in the way that research supports it. Um, and until recently, this is now just a topic that is actually scratching the surface in the media. And I'm really grateful to be a part mm -hmm. of that conversation. So poor practices persist, I believe, due to misinformation. But I do believe as well, and what I'm seeing both at my last school system, which was the Wake County Public School System in Raleigh, North Carolina, okay. and now in Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, two large urban school systems where I have with an incredible team and community implemented high quality curriculum that I believe that when teachers and community members and parents know better, when they know the research, they virtually always want to improve their practice. Yep. And so the saying no better, do better, uh, I think is what's coming to fruition in the state of North Carolina and is characterizing our new literacy practices uh, in a profound way. Yes, that's great. So when you think about what they might have known in the past, what are you, what do you think they might have known that now that they know more um, has changed their thinking around what they thought that they knew? Yeah. So that, I mean, there's been reading wars for, <laughs> for as long as I remember kind of understanding how to teach reading uh, in, in my post-secondary experiences. And we learned how to think about balanced literacy and thinking about the role leveled readers play uh, in a classroom through guided reading. We learned about when students are struggling with reading that we should be utilizing cueing systems to ask kids to look within text to see if they can identify pictures that can help them make sense of letters and sounds and asking them to look at other words to help them you know, through context clues. And all of those practices are, are really not supported by cognitive research to help determine how kids learn to read. And really, you know, word recognition matters. That's, that's what the research states, that we really need to have uh, at the center of all of our, especially our K2, and I would even extend to K3 instruction, that the relationships between sounds and letters is essential to increase uh, students' ability to be able to be good readers. Um, and I have even myself, you know, implemented poor practices and helped high performing students learn how to be readers through poor reading practices. Um, and I wish I could have that time back, but I'm grateful now through, you know, just taking it upon myself with the investment that these multiple districts have provided in me uh, with multiple partners and organizations to become more aware and to be in a position of privilege to be able to enact upon both technical and adaptive change because, you know, curriculum itself is really a technical solution. This is really an investment in people, yep. in my opinion, and really helping people understand the why behind the change and provide all of the coaching, the leadership, and the wraparound supports that are necessary to ensure that this, the change is sustainable. Um, and that's really hard, messy work. Um, and most districts, you know, that I've been a part of are not all, they're not financially positioned to do that well as a result of uh, sometimes bad ed tech investments, uh, as, as well as, you know, 10 years ago when we raised standards, 
across this country, many educators, many community men- members failed to remember that is also a time where we had one of the most horrific recessions uh, in our nation's history at the same time. So while we raised expectations for students and teachers, which is certainly not a bad thing, uh, we certainly didn't provision the resources that really are required of us to do that job. And in the absence of those resources, we've convinced teachers that they should be doing that independently, which is just really unfair and unreasonable. Yep. Brian, in your article, you talk about the National Reading Panel. Um, yeah. And, you know, that was 20 years ago that they went through and reviewed all these studies and made recommendations. Do you think the, these kinds of things that you're bringing up now are what contribute to those not transferring to the classroom? Well, I would say that the findings that, that came out 20 years ago, the National Reading Panel, are still not well known. I mean, people in, yeah. in the field are not talking about it. You know, the, the people who are coming and knocking on my door to try to sell me curriculum and products, very few of them are really interested in anchoring their, their products, their services in that level of research to do the work that's in front of us. Um, in most cases, we're actually trying, you know, I see the ecosystem that surrounds school systems much more focused on intervention um, and focused on, you know, these patchwork type approach. Uh, I refer to this in, in our community that, you know, we have provisioned all of these different snacks in the absence of having a healthy, nutritious meal at the center of our instruction in the center of our classrooms, uh, which is really the marriage of high quality instructional resources, a deep investment in teacher knowledge and skill, and making sure that we're also investing in the role that our students play in, in their learning. And, you know, the mistake that I have made multiple times is I've only focused on one or two of those aspects of what really define the instructional core. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm learning through research is that when you change one of those, you got to change them all. Um, and I feel like I'm much more positioned to tell my story, uh, to be vulnerable in the mistakes that I've made, both as a teacher, as a school leader, and as a district leader, uh, to help people learn um, to make better choices on behalf of kids because the results are there. When you look at the NAEP results, uh, the two states uh, that I'm not surprised are showing the greatest surge in performance are both Mississippi and Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the, from the policy level to the materials level to the execution and the accountability level, um, they are pioneering systemic change across an entire state in an incredibly transformative and, and speedy way. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot to learn from those uh, two states right now. Um, but sometimes, you know, the, the political nature of the work and the change is really difficult, too. That is true. It can be a little political. Um, one of the things that you brought up that I really wanted to highlight is that idea of adaptive and technical change. Can you mm-hmm. speak a little bit more about that and what that looked like for you in Charlotte Mecklenburg as you began to implement? Because I think that um, sometimes we adopt a high quality curriculum and we think, great, check the box. Now we're good. But there's so much more that comes along with it. So I'd love to hear about your experiences and what adaptive changes came after that big, big technical change that really was the starting point for all of this. Yeah, I mean, the technical change. So let me just let me take one step back to go a few steps forward. You know, I think it's really important to create some awareness for the change uh, and why the change is important. Um, I have had the benefit of partnering with TNTP, the new teacher project, uh, 
in all three systems that I've worked in. And in, in, in Broward County, Florida, the sixth largest district in the country, I had an opportunity to witness that partnership through the Gates Foundation as I was actually exiting the system and leaving and moving to North Carolina. Mm. And they did a quality review of our core ELA and mathematics curriculum six years ago. And I had no idea at that time that what we were being provisioned and what we were actually internally and locally selecting was not necessarily aligned to our new standards. It was the first time I was recognizing that publishers were actually just changing the covers of their curricula when they changed, yes. when we moved to Common Core <laughs> yes. and hiding within it a, a curriculum that was either aligned or still probably misaligned to the previous uh, state standards. Yes. And so that was a deep level of awareness and kind of like, wow, I had no idea. And as a chief academic officer in each of these organizations, it's my job to know that, right? So there's no finishing school for people in my position, and, we're, and, and it's a lonely, isolated position mm-hmm. uh, in all districts. So I think partnering with them and understanding and helping actually having data that is within your local context, um, I've utilized that when I moved to North Carolina to help go visit hundreds of classrooms to understand what types of tools should we be, we be using when we actually evaluate both written and taught instruction. I became aware of student achievement partners, their IPG, their instructional practice guide, which is helpful in understanding whether instruction is at the grade appropriate level or not. Uh, I became aware of their other tool, the the IMET tool, the instructional materials evaluation tool, which I began to train and develop all of my leadership uh, teams uh, within academics of each of these different school systems. So we can begin to deep, more deeply evaluate the quality of a curriculum beyond either a sales pitch, beyond the bells and whistles and or the swag that a publisher might want to try to sway uh, a vote uh, mm-hmm. through the procurement processes on, right? So we began to be centered much more on quality. And it was also the first time six years ago that I've heard of the nonprofit organization Ed Reports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I had an opportunity to lean in and explore the work that they're doing with teachers, with states across the country, I was really incredibly amazed uh, at their approach. Um, It was incredibly uh, important for me to crosswalk my evidence with my team's evidence in our findings using the IMET tool to their gateways tool Mm -hmm. to actually have deeper conversation around, all right, this is what we're seeing. This is what you're seeing. Why is that? What are we missing? I mean, it was really deepening the learning experiences and deepening the expertise that was really of all of the members of our teams, which is just really quite profound. Um, Because as you know, again, I go back 10 years ago when we changed standards, we didn't only not change resources, we didn't really change professional learning experiences to align to align to those expectations either. Yeah. And so I think the change, you know, going back to your original question around technical and adaptive change, like really being in center, being centered on why this change is important to your school system is really, to me, one of the most powerful first steps that you have to take. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the luxury being in a large uh, school system to have probably more resources than a moderate to small size system. Mm-hmm. So if you can't if you can't partner with an organization like TNTP to do a quality review, then you at least know you have ed reports that has done that heavy lifting on your behalf. Um, and so it starts there. And then I think the release of their research report, the opportunity myth last year, mm-hmm. uh, the timing was absolutely perfect on that to really 
deeply kind of connect not only the work that I had been doing, but, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a part of Charlotte Mecklenburg schools uh, is that they were just in the early stages of implementing a six year strategic plan. And it was centered all around understanding and executing and deepening the instructional core. They were really laser focused as a community way before I got here on what they wanted to do. And I felt that the, the learnings uh, and so even some of the mistakes that I've made in my prior uh, positions could really be helpful to not only help add value to the resources in the PD and the change in this community, uh, but also do so with 20% of all students in North Carolina, which I believe is a tipping point to creating change, not just within our local communities, both in Charlotte and Raleigh, uh, but across the entire state in, in terms of informing around what high quality curriculum and high quality instructional practices look like. And so from a technical perspective, like once you select the curriculum, I mean, that's really incredibly important in terms of the approach that we take, mm -hmm. but implementing is obviously even more important and doing that uh, gracefully um, <laughs> requires, it's, 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 it's not a tap dance, um, but it may be a salsa. Right? There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a moving of back and forth. There's a like lot that. of listening. You have to involve the community uh, in, in the change. And the technical aspects of the change are, yes, you provision new resources. The, mm -hmm. Another technical aspect of the change is that we really need to attend to the precision, the precision of standards and understanding our standards more deeply while we are implementing that curriculum. We also understand that we have to begin to think about how do we invest in professional learning experiences for everybody that's involved and how do we engage parents in the community in that change. I think those could be interpreted some level as adaptive, but I really believe in the nature of our work uh, that those three aspects of change are very much technical. Um, they don't really disrupt any of the institutional norms and infrastructures that we may have created over time that continue to cultivate and create disparities in achievement and in the identification of students who should be actually accelerated uh, in, in, other, in multiple types of ways uh, in our school system. And we recognize that that has to do with bias and it has to do with race. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and we're tackling that head on, too. And, we're, and it, we, we're referring to it as both mirror and window work. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not on this podcast deputized to have a courageous conversation about race, but I am deeply <laughs> exploring my own racial autobiography to be reflective as an executive leader, as an educator of how I'm showing up in the work yep. to make sure that I know as a white male, I've been extremely privileged to not only hold positions of power and authority, but just by being who I am. Uh, I walk in, as, in a persona of privilege every single day. And I'm really needing to be reflective, both as an individual with my team and the people that I serve to ensure that one, we're naming that our systems may not be designed, not may, they're not designed mm -hmm. to ensure all students are successful every day. And we got to call that out. Yeah. Yep. Um, this is not about just taking new resources, partnering with the right organization, buying something, telling somebody good luck. This is about really hard, messy, cerebral and heart work uh, that is going to require us to question everything that we once thought to be true. And, you know, this again, so... You know, Paul Gorski is a researcher that does a lot of equity work. 
Um, and there's a quote that I just absolutely love of his. It says, the hard truth uh, about racial equity is that it cannot be achieved with an obsessive commitment to meeting people where they are when where they are is fraught with racial bias and privilege. Mm. I love I love that quote so much because it also reminds me of our approach to literacy practices because we believe inherently through the approach of balanced literacy that we should be meeting students where they are at and only providing them leveled type readers and text. Mm-hmm. We actually have yep. national type curricula that do that. And yeah. all that's doing is amplifying the inequities that exist in our system and in our community. And those kids never have a chance to catch up. Um, and so I'm grateful that I've been immersed in some learning experiences to know better. I, I regret that I didn't know better sooner. Um, but I, I hold a position of privilege and I am privileged to be able to continue to share my learning and continue to be reflective on how I show up in this work to help more people, to help all people be successful. And that's not just our students, that's our teachers, that's our school leaders as well, who are doing the best they know how to do each and every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just need to help them be placed in positions of safety, of comfort, but also of learning. Yeah. Um, you know, we're now not only a learning organization for children every day, but we're a learning organization for adults. And the system is not designed to do that well. And we have to figure out a way to partner with our higher ed institutions better so the people that are coming through our pipelines are learning this post high school to come into our ranks. Because once they get into our teaching positions and they're given a set of keys in a room full of 110 classrooms over five periods a day, it's really difficult to carve out the time that is necessary and required to go deeper. Um, (laughs) Yes. That is so good, Brian. I feel like I wish you were sitting with me because I was like nodding my head and I would have totally fist bumped <laughs> you while you were talking all these 10 times. Um, yeah, I, I, yes. And Melissa and I have talked so much, you know, offline about how to get to that collegiate level so that folks are walking in the door out of that, those college classrooms way more prepared with what's the reality of education right now versus what we feel like they're being prepared for, which is the, which was the reality of education years ago. Um, you know, they're, they're being taught to rewrite lesson plans or to craft unit plans versus, you know, teaching, um, pre-teachers how to be pre-service teachers, how to be master implementers. And if we could, again, it's a shift in thinking it's, and I agree it's both technical and adaptive, um, in that way, but, I, so I, I'm, I love everything that you said. I'm very excited that you said it in the way that you said it. Like you're leveling the playing field um, pro- in regards to building knowledge, providing that equity and really centering PD on curriculum so that you're giving everyone a common purpose in this work. Um, I am very curious uh, what, because I know that you're part of um, and I think I forgot to say this in the beginning, but you are part of Curriculum Matters, PLN, which is yep. um, very cool. We're, we're excited that you're a part of that. Um, if you were to meet, you know, a CIO or an executive director, someone in a district who makes decisions around curriculum or who has the ability to impact decisions around curriculum and the district is not using a high quality curriculum currently, what advice would you give them? What words would you say in order to help them understand the importance of this very first step in technical change? Yeah, I think I, I'm in this scenario a lot when I go to state or national type conferences. Mm. Um, and, and 
I think it's more about asking the right questions than me providing the right advice. It's leading questions around what is it that they're using? How is it that they are experiencing it? How is it that they feel and or know that it's working for students, all students mm-hmm. and or their teachers? And how do they know? Um, and really the, the leading question should be grounded in how are you, how is anyone in the space of learning and teaching, defining quality resources and, or how are we defining success? Mm-hmm. And I think depending upon how somebody responds to those two questions, it allows me to know where to go next in terms of leveraging and creating a greater awareness of ed reports or creating mm-hmm. a greater awareness of what I shared with you about the quality review process of TNTP or sharing the opportunity myth with them and, and seeing like what's within our locus of control. Because mm-hmm. uh, what frustrates me, and this is not just with my peers, this is with just even anyone in general that we hide behind, you know, our problems saying that it's really the role of poverty and the way that it plays out in our communities that's contributing uh, to our lack of success. And I just, I, I will not buy into that narrative. Um, if I don't have any locus of control and creating positive change for all students, then what am I doing? Right. Um, and, and as a teacher, as an assistant principal and principal, all serving uh, underserved, underprivileged communities and creating great results with people, not to people, doing it with children, doing it with teachers, doing it with their families and empower, through empowerment, I know great things can happen for all kids. The research is out there. All kids can learn to read. We're just, we're not putting all of the right conditions in place to make that happen. And we got to stop hiding behind, the, you know, the fact of saying that we are. Um, we may be doing what we think is the best that we know how at the time, and we should not be indicted for what we think is the best, but I think we can always, I think all educators want to do better when they know better. And so trying to ask the right questions and push a little bit uh, around the approach, um, I think is really the most important thing to do because like I said in the beginning, when you were asking me like, why does, you know, why does this problem persist, whether it's with NAEP scores or high quality curriculum? I just think it's a lot of misinformation, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I've been really blessed to, to work in three school systems that have a lot of resources that have provisioned me with a lot of opportunities to learn, to grow, to allow me to lead and play and create and make mistakes and recognizing that failure is a part of this work. Um, but there's a level of seriousness behind this work, too, because we don't make widgets. We're investing in human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a sense of urgency. Anytime I talk to another person in a role of mine, they, we all feel that sense of urgency. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm grateful to work for multiple superintendents who have always found a lot of respect for the chief academic uh, officer position, but I do believe it's somewhat of a thankless position uh, in the community because, you know, we're the one kind of pushing and prodding change when people, even myself, I, you know, I don't like to be pushed and prodded to change, you know, unless I really understand all of those things. And I really want to continue to put myself in the end user experience to know what that feels like, to know how, you know, how are we, how are we showing up and making people's hearts feel mm-hmm. um, as much as how are we pushing them in their minds? But, you know, we, there's, there's a lot of work to be done, but I believe in this industry. I believe the impact that public education can have in the lives of all children. Um, but our beliefs, mindsets, and habits 
have to translate into action and excellence. Um, we can't yeah. just talk about them. We actually have to do some things. And I've just, again, I've been really blessed to be in a space where I've been able to accomplish some things and learn mm-hmm. from a lot of mistakes. And it's important for me to talk about both yeah. to relate to anybody. Um, Cause I certainly have made probably more mistakes than successes that I've had, but I, you know, all of those have been learning experiences for me to, to hopefully better serve all of the communities that I've uh, been, been a part of. Yeah. Yep. One of Brian, the things, and I know, oh, sorry, Melissa, we totally <laughs> talked at the same time. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <laughs> We're so excited. Uh, Brian, I was just going to ask you if you could do a quick recap of, you know, someone was sitting here listening to this podcast thinking like, I'm not sure if our reading program is evidence-based or not. Um, <laughs> can you just do a recap of like, what are the things they should be looking for or should have in, if it's re- in um, evidence-based? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, right away, I would be like leaning them towards ed reports, but I would actually be talking through things that I know that exist both in their gateways approach, as well as student achievement partners, instructional materials, evaluation tool. Mm -hmm. So I would be asking them, you know, is there highly complex, grade appropriate text at the center of your instruction every single day as a non-negotiable? Yes. Um, And and are you provisioning that for every student? Like that's a yes or no question. Mm -hmm. That's almost like a gatekeeper to say, because if that's a no, then you realize that you got to kind of back up and figure out why is that important in the first place yep. using the context of what the standards call for yep. to begin to explain that. Um, the second thing I would be asking for is how they are utilizing evidence and practices and questions within the curricula to have students naturally almost 85 percent of the time that they are in instruction embedded with it, you know, in a learning experience, leveraging evidence within the text to show continued deep understanding uh, of what they're learning through different types of speaking activities, writing activities, reading activities, and creation. Um, I think that's really important too. Yep. Um, I've seen districts begin to dabble with both of those uh, two components where I see a big space to grow across the country is really understanding that each of our curricula and or our units and modules should be in service of teaching children to build knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we've lost as a result of, I would say, bad policy, both at federal and state level. Uh, and I say that respectfully, because I don't know if I knew it was bad at the time. <laughs> but we've actually incentivized, we began to chase test scores and teach standards in isolation, mm-hmm. rather than teaching yes. literacy as a means of helping a student make meaning of the world and themselves within the world that they live. Yeah. Oh God, and we've yes. lost, we've <laughs> lost, we've lost our way. I mean, we're teaching main idea just to understand what main idea is without them understanding what was an author's intent and why they've made the main idea of the text that they crafted in the way that they did, like to really understand mm-hmm. the purpose and the mindsets behind why text was even crafted in the first place in the design and the language and the juicy sentences, mm-hmm. like all of that is really, really important. And we missed the mark on that as a result of chasing an end of grade or an EOG or a NAEP score. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, that's an adaptive change pace because people, teachers are, we, we have rewarded people for not doing that. Yes. Right. Like, yes. And so like, isolation. And, yep. Yeah. And, and sometimes we financially incentivized those yep. types of rewards. So like, how do you help a teacher walk away from that practice to recognize that we're actually in search of something bigger. And to me, that's where the power of Louisiana and Mississippi surging through the country with their NAEP results, to me, makes a case that the path that we are on in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools, as well as the Wake County school system in Raleigh, 
is the right path Mm -hmm. as a result of really not just thinking about this around like a one year, two year runway to get a quick fix and a quick bump on our, on our test scores, but to really understand that this type of foundational work is absolutely essential. If any of our kids are going to deeply understand the complex text that they're going to get in high school, college Mm -hmm. and in their careers. Um, so I, I just think that those things are really important. And the, the last thing that I would say from an evidence-based piece, especially in the K-2, is that we really need to ensure that we're teaching daily systematic phonics yep. and, and not, you know, just kind of taking these hodgepodge approach. Uh, it, it really needs to be, you know, structured and, and scaffolded and sequenced in a very, very specific way. Uh, I'm really grateful that EL Education, and one of the reasons that we wanted to partner with them is that their K-2 curriculum is really rooted in Dr. Linnea Aries' uh, research uh, around mm-hmm. microphases and helping students develop uh, from a pre-alphabetic phase to a consolidated alphabetic phase of really how they're understanding mm-hmm. uh, the meaning of syllable types uh, and consonants and, wor- and, and letter sounds to make sure that they're making sense of, of words and identifying the ability to spell uh, words, even with, you know, obviously with multiple syllables. I think all of that's really, really important. And if you're not doing that every single day, think about what the, the gap that we're creating when those students get into fourth grade, fifth grade, and what type of opportunity do we have to help them catch up? Yeah. Um, and that's a problem of practice that we're, you know, we're really grappling with right now. Yeah. Brian, I want to just um, share two things. The first is about that number three that you shared about systematic phonics. I was um, in a district a few weeks ago and, you know, a school district office and um, about to talk with some leaders and some teachers um, about Wit and Wisdom ELA curriculum. And this mom walks in. And she signed in and stood next to me and she said, are you here to talk about curriculum? Because I guess she saw the materials. And I said, yeah, I am. She said, is it about the science of reading? And I I said, well, yes, because I wasn't sure where she was going. She said, so I have two dyslexic kids. Please do whatever you can to get systematic phonics into the schools. What can I do to help you? And I said, well, you know, definitely talk to whoever is in charge from the district after, you know, this presentation. It's not we we are not systematic phonics, but we do believe in that as well. And I said, I'm I'm really impressed that you have such deep knowledge of it because we talked for a bit. And I mean, just to see a parent who had to make herself an expert based on desperation, for her right. fighting for her kids' lives because they are they could not read because they did mm-hmm. not get systematic phonics. That, that oh my heart just I mean I still think about yeah. her. I can picture her face. <laughs> every I day. had a similar conversation with a parent just last night who has a daughter who's in first grade and they were not able to benefit from the curriculum that we just rolled out this year, last year during the child's kindergarten experience. And the mom was, you know, not in tears per se, but just like so willing to lean into this work because their daughter is still at the pre-alphabetic phase. And they're now after the first nine weeks of the first quarter are we're not necessarily equipped with knowing not only what to do to advise the school, but also figuring out how they can actually help their children at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's really, uh, <laughs> you know, something that's important to call out around the new curricula 
today, both wit and wisdom, uh, EL education, and there's a few other high quality curriculum that I, I, I reference in my article, yep. uh, that they're educative in nature, right? They're, they're quasi professional mm-hmm. learning tools for teachers to better understand this change and why it's important to better understand their standards. But there's so many embedded resources mm-hmm. to actually share with parents and community members for them to be more engaged as well yep. uh, and to be more thoughtful and how they could be more laser focused and helping their own children succeed. I mean, that's, that community level of coherence is, is what, I mean, I geek out over that every day. I mean, this, that, that's like my dream yeah. <laughs> is to get everybody kind of rowing the boat in the same way, the same form, the same speed. I mean, you can go deeper, faster um, when you create that. And just to create that type of excitement and energy through awareness and education. Because again, everybody wants to help. There, there's not, I've not met one teacher, one principal, one community member that doesn't want to figure out how best to serve uh, their community or their children. It's just a matter of equipping them. And I know that I don't mean that to sound like all of this is easy. No, yeah. Um, but it, but it, it, it hopefully elevates the responsibility that we have as educators to simplify without watering, like to simplify our yeah. message so everybody understands like what this really means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking about curriculum in the community is. Uh, not the sexiest type conversation, right? Like, you, like you, it's, it doesn't. I actually like, think it's very sexy. I like nothing more. Okay. Than, well, <laughs> well, no, but I think that well, most people don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Brian, our listeners may find it very sexy talking about curriculum, but the general True. public probably does not. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's our it's our job, and I, I don't want to go down a slippery slope here, but like, it's our job to help people make sense of its importance. It's our job. Yeah. Yeah. To help mm-hmm. people understand like what what this means for everybody. What does it mean for kids? What does it mean for a parent, a teacher? What does it mean for the local nonprofit uh, who is figuring out ways to contribute? What does yeah. that mean for the philanthropic communities who are looking to figure out how to invest and scale best practice in a community? What does it look like for the Boys and Girls Club, the YMCA, and the other tutoring agencies uh, mm-hmm. that are surrounding our school system and the faith-based community who is extending learning throughout the weekend, on the weekends, like how do we get everybody speaking from the same hymn sheet, for lack of a better term, to begin to really deepen these practices and provision the materials? Like that's what this is about. Yes. Wrapping everybody around the supports. No doubt. Yep. Great. I'm, I could talk to you all day, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Melissa, do you have any final questions for Brian? I think like always, we always ask for one last piece of advice. You've given a lot of advice already, but if you had one last thing to leave with our listeners, what would you tell them? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll use a quote uh, from one of my colleagues that I co-authored uh, a, a, an article about this work in Ed Week last March. His name is Jared Miracle, and he's a chief academic officer in Tennessee, and he talks about you know, sticking to the plan long enough for it to work to have a meaningful impact. Mm. Uh, If I have any advice for people that are willing to go in, like you got to put all your chips in the middle of the table and really go all in and have the political positioning, the financial positioning, the knowledge base, the will to understand this is not easy work. Mm -hmm. This work isn't about getting a quick bump. If you're interested in a one to 5% bump in your proficiency scores, or you're hopefully you're, you're focused on your college and career readiness scores. This work is not 
that. Yeah. Um, it yeah. will, it will cultivate that it will create scores, uh, gains in scores. I mean, Mississippi, uh, is showing that Louisiana is showing that if you look at the work that had happened in the Wake County public school system, just after one year of implementation of a new curriculum, we had the highest growth across all subgroups in our third grade reading scores, um, that we had in the last four years previous. And that's in one year, which you traditionally experienced an implementation dip. Yeah. Yep. But this, this is about, this is about the adaptive change. This is about thinking about all of the infrastructures and norms that we have created to, to not have everybody be successful. And you have to have a long-term and a short-term vision to take this work on and the fortitude to stick it out when it may not work right away because we're actually asking people that we deeply care about and that we serve every day to unlearn and relearn. Yeah. And we need to respect yeah. that deeply. And that's what I would share. That's great oh, advice. I like great that. Great advice. <laughs> so, Brian, when when will your article be released, and where can we find it? Uh, it'll be released tomorrow. Ooh. AASA, uh, our superintendent, National Superintendents Association, will be releasing it digitally uh, tomorrow. So I'm super excited about that. I believe it's already in their November print version that should have been mailed uh, to districts and to homes earlier this week. So people may actually... Uh, have begun to start reading it. And I have a couple other uh, distribution partners that also want to help kind of continue to send this message out. And whether it's this piece, the work of uh, em- Emily Hanford or the work of Tim Shanahan or Karen Bates, Curriculum Matters. I mean, there's so many people beginning to cultivate a national dialogue around this conversation. It's not just about uh, this one article, but mm-hmm. it's really about taking a stand and yeah. making sure that we don't let this conversation fall. Uh, yeah. We got to keep this going and create momentum because I really do believe, along with a lot of other people, that I've had the pleasure and honor of to do this work. That literacy is the innovation opportunity of 2019 and beyond. We got to stop chasing bells and whistles and recognizing we cannot celebrate innovation when we're cultivating children who can't read post graduation. That's not acceptable. Absolutely, so we are right there like with you. We are. We are on the. <laughs> The literacy, I, Karen Bates says literacy tsunami, right? Liter, uh, That's right. Literacy, we're literacy crusaders in this literacy renaissance. And we're like, we are right there with all of you. So thank yeah, you for we that. We appreciate and, you so much. Yeah. I uh, appreciate for, you both too. Thank you for helping me, uh, you know, just share this message, share my passion in my heart. Um, and I'm hopeful if, you know, anybody would like to partner and think about this work with me, uh, you know, I'm an email uh, a Twitter uh, direct message away. My handle is at edukings, E-D-U-K-I-N-G-S. Uh, and again, I'm the proud chief academic officer of Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. And we're here not just to serve our local community, uh, but all communities. And we like to learn together. So I'm hopeful uh, through this work and spreading the word uh, that I can continue to work with other people uh, to do good work on behalf of our children. Oh my gosh. I know you're going to have so many fans after this, Brian. So we will (laughs) include your information in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking time today to podcast with us. We are thrilled that we got to speak with you. Um, And for our listeners, be sure to check out Brian's article. Um, It will be out when this podcast comes out. So we will release and um, we will put the link in the show notes so that you can get it, get your hands on it. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks, Thank Brian. you. <laughs> Bye. All right. Take care. Bye. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye.